Volume three, part three of Herodotus Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Histories, volume three, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by E. D. Godley, part three. When the bridges and the work at Athos were ready, and both the dikes at the canal's entrances built to prevent the surf from silting up the entrances of the dug passage, and the canal itself were reported to be now completely finished, the army then wintered. At the beginning of spring the army made ready and set forth from Sardis to march to Abydus. As it was setting out, the sun left his place in the heaven and was invisible, although the sky was without clouds and very clear, and the day turned into night. When Xerxes saw and took note of that, he was concerned, and asked the Magi what the vision might signify. They declared to him that the god was showing the Greeks the abandonment of their cities, for the sun, they said, was the prophet of the Greeks, as the moon was their own. Xerxes rejoiced exceedingly to hear that, and continued on his march. As Xerxes led his army away, Pythias the Lydian, frightened by the heavenly vision and encouraged by the gifts that he had received came to xerxes and said master i have a favour to ask that i desire of you easy for you to grant and precious for me to receive xerxes supposed that pythias would demand anything rather than what he did ask and answered that he would grant the request bidding him declare what he desired when pythias heard this he took courage and said Master, I have five sons, and all of them are constrained to march with you against Hellas. I pray you, O king, take pity on me in my advanced age, and release one of my sons, the eldest, from service, so that he may take care of me and of my possessions. Take the four others with you, and may you return back with all your plans accomplished. Xerxes became very angry, and thus replied, Villain! You see me marching against Hellas myself, and taking with me my sons and brothers and relations and friends. Do you, my slave, who should have followed me with all your household and your very wife, speak to me of your son? Be well assured of this, that a man's spirit dwells in his ears. When it hears good words, it fills the whole body with delight, but when it hears the opposite, it swells with anger." When you did me good service and promised more, you will never boast that you outdid your king in the matter of benefits, and now that you have turned aside to the way of shamelessness, you will receive a lesser requital than you merit. You and four of your sons are saved by your hospitality, but you shall be punished by the life of that one you most desire to keep. With that reply he immediately ordered those who were assigned to do these things to find the eldest of Pythias' sons, and cut him in half, then to set one half of his body on the right side of the road, and the other on the left, so that the army would pass between them. This they did, and the army passed between. First went the baggage train and the beasts of burden, and after them a mixed army of all sorts of nations, not according to their divisions, but all mingled together, when more than half had passed, there was a space left, and these did not come near the king. After that, first came a thousand horsemen, 
chosen out of all Persians. Next, a thousand spearmen, picked men like the others, carrying their spears reversed. And after them, ten horses of the breed called Nesean, equipped most splendidly. The horses are called Nesean, because there is in Medea a wide plain of that name where the great horses are bred. Behind these ten horses was the place of the sacred chariot of Zeus, drawn by eight white horses, with the charioteer following the horses on foot and holding the reins, for no mortal man may mount into that seat. After these came Xerxes himself in a chariot drawn by Nesean horses. Beside him was his charioteer, whose name was Pateramphus, the son of Atanis, a Persian. In this way Xerxes rode out from Sardis, but whenever the thought took him he would alight from the chariot into a carriage. Behind him came a thousand spearmen of the best and noblest blood of Persia, carrying their spears in the customary manner. After them a thousand picked Persian horsemen, and after the horse ten thousand that were foot-soldiers, chosen out of the rest of the Persians. One thousand of these had golden pomegranates on their spear-shafts instead of a spike, and surrounded the rest. The nine thousand who were inside them had silver pomegranates. Those who held their spears reversed also carried golden pomegranates, and those following nearest to Xerxes had apples of gold. After the ten thousand came ten thousand Persian horsemen in array. After these there was a space of two stadia, and then the rest of the multitude followed all mixed together. From Lydia the army took its course to the river Caicos and the land of Mysia. Leaving the Caicos, they went through Aternius to the city of Carine, keeping the mountain of Cain on the left. From there they journeyed over the plain of Thebe, passing the city of Adramitium and the Pelasgian city of Atandros. Then they came into the territory of Ilium, with Ida on their left. When they had halted for the night at the foot of Ida, a storm of thunder and lightning fell upon them, killing a great crowd of them there. When the army had come to the river Scamander, which was the first river after the beginning of their march from Sardis that fell short of their needs, and was not sufficient for the army and the cattle to drink, arriving at this river, Xerxes ascended to the citadel of Priam, having a desire to see it. After he saw it and asked about everything there, he sacrificed a thousand cattle to Athena of Ilium, and the Magi offered libations to the heroes. After they did this, a panic fell upon the camp in the night. When it was day, they journeyed on from there, keeping on their left the cities of Rhythium and Ophrinium, and Dardanus, which borders Abydos, and on their right the Tucrian Gergite. When they were at Abydos, Xerxes wanted to see the whole of his army. A lofty seat of white stone had been set up for him on a hill there for this very purpose, built by the people of Abydos at the king's command. There he sat and looked down on the seashore, viewing his army and his fleet. As he viewed them, he desired to see the ships contend in a race. They did so, and the Phoenicians of Sidon won. Xerxes was pleased with the race and with his expedition. When he saw the whole Hellespont covered with ships, and all the shores and plains of Abydos full of men, Xerxes first declared himself blessed, and then wept. His uncle Artabanus perceived this. He, who in the beginning had spoken his mind freely, and advised Xerxes not to march against Hellas. Marking how Xerxes wept, he questioned him, and said, 
O oh, king, what a distance there is between what you are doing now and a little while ago. After declaring yourself blessed, you weep. Xerxes said, I was moved to compassion when I considered the shortness of all human life, since of all this multitude of men not one will be alive a hundred years from now. Artabanus answered, In one life we have deeper sorrows to bear than that. Short as our lives are, there is no human being, either here or elsewhere, so fortunate that it will not occur to him, often, and not just once, to wish himself dead rather than alive. Misfortunes fall upon us, and sicknesses trouble us, so that they make life, though short, seem long. Life is so miserable a thing that death has become the most desirable refuge for humans. The god is found to be envious in this giving us only a taste of the sweetness of living. Xerxes answered and said, Artabanus, human life is such as you define it to be. Let us speak no more of that, nor remember evils in our present prosperous estate. But tell me this, if you had not seen the vision in your dream so clearly, would you still have held your former opinion and advised me not to march against Hellas, or would you have changed your mind? Come, Tell me this truly. Artabanus answered and said, O king, may the vision that appeared in my dream bring such an end as we both desire. But I am even now full of fear and beside myself for many reasons, especially when I see that the two greatest things in the world are your greatest enemies. Xerxes made this response. Are you possessed? What are these two things that you say are my greatest enemies? Is there some fault with the numbers of my land army? Does it seem that the Greek army will be many times greater than ours? Or do you think that our navy will fall short of theirs? Or that the fault is in both? If our power seems to you to lack anything in this regard, it would be best to muster another army as quickly as possible. Artabanus answered and said, O king, there is no fault that any man of sound judgment could find either with this army or with the number of your ships. And if you gather more, those two things I speak of become even much more your enemies. These two are the land and the sea. The sea has nowhere any harbour, as I conjecture, that will be able to receive this navy and save your ships if a storm arise. Yet there has to be not just one such harbour, but many of them all along the land you are sailing by. Since there are no harbours able to receive you, understand that men are the subjects and not the rulers of their accidents. I have spoken of one of the two, and now I will tell you of the other. The land is your enemy in this way. If nothing is going to stand in your way and hinder you, the land becomes more your enemy the further you advance, constantly unaware of what lies beyond. No man is ever satisfied with success. So I say that if no one opposes you, the increase of your territory and the time passed in getting it will breed famine. The best man is one who is timid while making plans because he takes into account all that may happen to him, but is bold in action. Xerxes answered, Artabanus, you define these matters reasonably, but do not fear everything, nor take account of all alike. If you wanted to take everything equally into account on every occasion that happens, you would never do anything. It is better to do everything boldly and suffer half of what you dread than to fear all chances and so never suffer anything. But if you quarrel with whatever is said, yet cannot put forth a secure position, 
you must be proved as wrong on your part as he who holds the contrary opinion. In this both are alike. How can someone who is only human know where there is security? I think it is impossible. Those who have the will to act most often win the rewards, not those who hesitate and take account of all chances. You see what power Persia has attained. Now, if those kings who came before me had held such opinions as yours, or if they had not held them, but had had advisers like you, you would never have seen our fortunes at their present height. But, as it is, those kings ran the risks and advanced them to this height. Great successes are not won except by great risks. So we will do as they did. We are travelling in the fairest season of the year, and we will return home the conquerors of all Europe without suffering famine or any other harm anywhere. First, we carry ample provisions with us on our march. Second, we will have the food of those whose land and nation we invade, for we are marching against men who are tillers of the soil, not nomads. Then said Artabanus, O king, I see that you will not allow us to fear any danger. But take from me this advice, as there is need for much speaking when our affairs are so great. Cyrus, son of Cambyses, subdued and made tributary to Persia all Ionians except only the Athenians. I advise you by no means to lead these Ionians against the land of their fathers, since even without their aid we are well able to overcome our enemies. If they come with our army, they must either behave very unjustly by enslaving their mother city, or very justly by aiding it to be free. If they deal very unjustly, they bring us no great advantage, but by dealing very justly they may well do great harm to your army. Take to heart the truth of that ancient saying, that the end of every matter is not revealed at its beginning. Xerxes answered, Artabanus, in all your pronouncements you are most mistaken when you fear that the Ionians might change sides. We have the surest guarantee for them, and you and all who marched with Darius against the Scythians can bear witness. They had the power to destroy or to save the whole Persian army, and they gave proof of their justice and faithfulness with no evil intent. Moreover, since they have left their children and wives and possessions in our country, we need not consider it even possible that they will make any violent change. So be rid of that fear, keep a stout heart, and guard my household and tyranny. To you alone I entrust the symbols of my kingship. Xerxes spoke thus, and sent Artabanus away to Susa. He next sent for the most notable among the Persians, and when they were present he said, Persians, I have assembled you to make this demand, that you bear yourselves bravely, and never sully the great and glorious former achievements of the Persians. Let us each and all be zealous, for the good that we seek is common to all. For these reasons I bid you set your hands to the war strenuously. I know that we march against valiant men, and if we overcome them, it is certain that no other human army will ever withstand us. Let us now cross over, after praying to the gods who hold Persia for their allotted realm. All that day they made preparations for the crossing. On the next they waited until they could see the sun rise, burning all kinds of incense on the bridges, and strewing the road with myrtle bows. At sunrise Xerxes poured a libation from a golden phial into the sea, praying to the sun that no accident might befall him which would keep him from subduing Europe 
before he reached its farthest borders. After the prayer he cast the vial into the Hellespont, and along with it a golden bowl, and a Persian sword which they call Arsinasis. As for these, I cannot rightly determine whether he cast them into the sea for offerings to the sun, or repented having whipped the Hellespont, and gave gifts to the sea as atonement. When they had done this, they crossed over, the foot and horse all by the bridge nearest to the Pontus, the beasts of burden and the service train by the bridge towards the Aegean. The ten thousand Persians, all wearing garlands, led the way, and after them came the mixed army of diverse nations. All that day these crossed. On the next, first crossed the horsemen and the ones who carried their spears reversed. These also wore garlands. After them came the sacred horses and the sacred chariot, then Xerxes himself and the spearmen and the thousand horse, and after them the rest of the army. Meanwhile the ships put out and crossed to the opposite shore, but I have also heard that the king crossed last of all. When Xerxes had passed over to Europe, he viewed his army crossing under the lash. Seven days and seven nights it was in crossing, with no pause. It is said that when Xerxes had now crossed the Hellespont, a man of the Hellespont cried, O oh Zeus, why have you taken the likeness of a Persian man, and changed your name to Xerxes, leading the whole world with you, to remove Hellas from its place? You could have done that without these means. When all had passed over and were ready for the road, a great portent appeared among them. Xerxes took no account of it, although it was easy to interpret. A mare gave birth to a hare. The meaning of it was easy to guess. Xerxes was to march his army to Hellas with great pomp and pride, but to come back to the same place fleeing for his life. There was another portent that was shown to him at Sardis. A mule gave birth to a mule that had double genitals, both male and female, the male above the other. But he took no account of either sign, and journeyed onward. The land army was with him. His navy sailed out of the Hellespont, and travelled along the land, going across from the land army. The ships sailed westwards, laying their course for the headland of Sarpedon, where Xerxes had ordered them to go and wait for him. The army of the mainland travelled towards the east and the sunrise through the Chersonese, with the tomb of Athamas' daughter Heli on its right, and the town of Cardia on its left, marching through the middle of a city called Agora. From there they rounded the head of the Black Bay, as it is called, and crossed the Black River, which could not hold its own, then, against the army, but gave out. Crossing this river, which gives its name to the bay, they went westwards, past the Aeolian city of Enus, and the marsh of Stentor, until they came to Doriscus. The territory of Doriscus is in Thrace, a wide plain by the sea, and through it flows a great river, the Hebrus. Here had been built that royal fortress which is called Doriscus, and a Persian guard had been posted there by Darius ever since the time of his march against Scythia. It seemed to Xerxes to be a fit place for him to arrange and number his army, and he did so. All the ships had now arrived at Doriscus, and the captains at Xerxes' command brought them to the beach near Doriscus, where stands the Samothracian city of Sene and Zoni. At the end is Serium, a well-known headland. This country was in former days possessed by the Sicones. To this beach they brought in their ships and hauled them up for rest. 
Meanwhile, Xerxes made a reckoning of his forces at Doriscus. I cannot give the exact number that each part contributed to the total, for there is no one who tells us that. But the total of the whole land army was shown to be one million and seven hundred thousand. They were counted in this way. Ten thousand men were collected in one place, and when they were packed together as closely as could be, a line was drawn around them. When this was drawn, the ten thousand were sent away, and a wall of stones was built on a line reaching up to a man's navel. When this was done, the others were brought into the walled space, until in this way all were numbered. When they had been numbered, they were marshalled by nations. End of Volume 3, Part 3